You're listening to Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Each week, you'll hear compelling talks from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other public events presented by the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Institute is an educational and policy studies organization that fosters values-based leadership and provides a nonpartisan venue for dealing with critical issues of the day. On this episode, Alfre Woodard talks with Damian Wetzel about her career and work on the front lines as an artist and activist. Woodard has earned an Oscar nomination, four Emmy Awards, three SAG Awards, and a Golden Globe. She directed and produced Nelson Mandela's favorite African folktales. It won the 2010 Audio Book of the Year and garnered a Grammy Award nomination for Best Children's Spoken Word Album. She currently serves on the President's Committee on the Arts and Humanities and is a member of the Creative Coalition. Woodard co-founded Artists for a New South Africa, a nonprofit that works to reverse the spread of HIV-AIDS and further democracy and human rights in South Africa and the United States. She is an active member of Turnaround Arts, an organization that works to provide arts education resources in high-poverty, low-performing schools. Wetzel is director of the Aspen Institute Arts Program, artistic director of the Vail International Dance Festival, and founding director of the Jerome Robbins New Essential Works Program. He was a principal dancer with the New York City Ballet for 20 years and has been a visiting professor at Harvard Law School. This year, he received the Harvard Arts Medal and in 2009 was appointed to the President's Committee on the Arts and Humanities. Here are Alfre Woodard and Damian Wetzel. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Damian Wetzel, director of the Aspen Institute Arts Program. Uh, and we're here today celebrating uh, one of our Harmon Eisner artists in residence, the great actor Alfre Woodard. Uh, say the, the Harmon Eisner Artisan Residence Program uh, started in 2006, and since then it has grown in, in uh, scale uh, and in variety of artists represented. And the, the point of it from the beginning, as envisioned by the late Sidney Harmon and Michael Eisner, was to bring the arts and artists and artistic mentality back into the great conversation of the Aspen Institute. So what does that mean? It means specifically that what we're not here to do is to get a great actor or dancer or musician to come here and do a gig, to come and play, to come and do their stuff, strut their stuff. What we are here to do is to take that artistic sensibility and bring people who are engaging through their art in society, in diplomacy, in education, in economic development, in activism. Uh, and we have with us uh, in Alfre Woodard one of the great activists of our time, uh, a true cha change agent, someone who believes in uh, making a difference. And so I thought we'd just start right there. Uh, you told us earlier in the education panel uh, that it was, it sounds like it was in the DNA of Tulsa where you grew up, that if you were uh, a young African-American woman, you either had to be, you said, numbed out or you were an activist. Um, somehow I think you took that to another place, but tell us about that, what that felt like, if you would. You know, you're a, you're a little girl, and you're already thinking these things? You're not just thinking I need to have a nice day, have some fun with my dolls, whatever, play. Oh, I wasn't a doll person. No dolls, okay, yeah. whatever it Can was. Can you take me down just a bit? I, I have a pretty big voice, thanks. Um, I'm reminded, just as you said that, my father, M.H. Uh, Woodard, and my mom was Constance, a lot of that comes from who they are. Um, 
My father's people were landowners. They ran for land when Oklahoma became a territory. And my mother's people were sharecroppers in Texas. And so these are big families. And uh, there's something, I think, about um, working the land that, that you cannot deny your interconnectedness to other people. So you, know, you put your crop in, and it's the luck of the draw, whether yours comes up that year or what happens. If somebody's failed, somebody within shouting distance, it's, it's incumbent on, uh, upon everybody to make sure that that family eats that year not the cast off, but has the same thing to eat that your family does. Because it's just, you, you, it, it's demonstrated to you constantly when you work the land that, that you are all equal, absolutely equal. And so it, I, I came up, they lived in the city. I mean, we were raised in the city, but I think it's that sensibility of uh, that you, everybody has to take care of each other. And I feel grateful I was on the end to help take care of somebody rather than being on the other end. Mm -hmm. I also, my father, during the Depression, uh, his mother, because his father um, died when he was very young, and um, she had 12 kids. And my father remembers and talks about uh, being a young black boy. His mom was a little uh, Irish woman, half black, half Irish, and she had all these Amazonian kids. and. They would, you know, they, they, their farm kept producing well, no matter what was happening. And he talked about seeing people come through and helping his mother fill buckets of, of what we then, back then they called hobos. And my father would always say, you know, they said those were hobos. Those weren't hobos. Those were some, those were some people's fathers out, you know, just out trying to make a way. Uh, some people's brothers, but so having that experience to, to be filling the bucket of white men who are coming to ask his little black mother for assistance, but in the same county, you could get strung up as a young black boy for any number of things. He and his brothers were protected because my grandmother was formidable, but I mean, it's all that kind of strange relationships that we all have, especially in the South back then. But so they came Sounds into like, the city I with mean, that. I hear like a level of ownership. You were a part of the land. You took responsibility for it. You took responsibility for your neighbors. And that was in your DNA growing up. But yeah, and what they came into the city, my father did very well. And even among the- What did he do? He was, a, he was an interior decorator and a businessman and an oil man. See, back then, some of y'all are old enough here to remember it, black men always had two and three jobs. Mm -hmm. Even if you were a doctor, you had two more jobs on the side, the lawyers. It was just, it was that you just, you just worked. You just found, if there was time to do something you, and you saw a need, you say, you know what? Let's, why don't we open a nursing mm -hmm. home? Why don't we do this? And so there was all that kind of activity. But, um, but my, uh, I have to tell you this, my father would shout us in every day because, you know, you're running around and my mother would always say, ooh, you smell fresh. You smell like outdoors. It's like when you're running and playing and you come inside. We would be yelled inside to come every day at 6 o'clock and watch. This is Douglas Edwards with the news. I can remember my first being five and just standing there and you're itching because you were 
playing in the chiggers, and you'd, you'd, you'd stand there, the three of us, and we'd have to watch the news every day with him, mm -hmm. and then he would ask you what you thought about the news. So it was, it was, it was always, uh, I had an idyllic childhood, but absolutely aware, made aware of what was going on in the world. Wow. And then yourself, you know, coming from the five, you're scratching and watching, but absorbing and being forced to give your opinion and, and then wanting to give your opinion, to what you described as walking precinct at 10. Uh, to me, these are formative experiences that, yeah, you know, you don't really, that. they get in your, in your head and that becomes, it's, it seems perfectly natural then, you know, what's come after as far as political activism and other things. But uh, did it, did you take to it right away? I, I would say so because, I mean, my opinion is my, my sister it does hilarious interpretations of me giving my opinion because she would usually say, you know, I don't care. She's six years older. She's very bourgeois and, you know, a princess. I don't care. And, you know, she'd get yelled at. My brother would go, I don't know, because he was quiet. And my father would say, you have to know something. And, you know, I would just say something like, well, I think that man should go over there and see what the kids are playing and just anything. And my father would go, well, that's, that's one way to look at it. And, <laughs> and my sister would go, that, that didn't make any sense. But it was a whole thing of ju just have an opinion. But like I said, I mean, everybody else drank the same water, but some of us responded differently to the water. Right. And I mean, again, what you just described almost, there was some drama in that. I mean, you were willing to go out there. Okay, an opinion is saying something that has a, a point of view, and I'll just go for it. I'm going to. So, did you feel you were a little actor already? I didn't at all. I didn't discover acting until I was 16, really. But looking back, my siblings say, oh my God, you've always been an actor. You know, whatever you didn't want to do, you would suddenly have, you know, a big malaise and fall on the floor and, you know, you'd be blinded by a headache until the dishes were done. I don't remember that, though. <laughs> Interesting. But, you know, we got spanked back in the day. And she also said, huh. you know, when my sister was time for her to be spanked, we, and, you know, back then, neighbors looked after you as well as your family. So if you were over your friend's house and you broke a vase or you <coughs> did something, smoked a cigarette when I was six, uh, <laughs> then that, that parent would spank you, get a switch and spank everybody in the neighborhood that was there. You'd go home, your mother said, Stella told me she had to get you all today. Come on, you'd get spanked again and wait till your father gets home. And so it was this sort of ritualistic thing of, you got spanked a lot. So I guess at some point, my sister says, they would barely tap me and I would just cry and weep. But, and she said, you were acting then, you know, but we'd have to chase, the whole neighborhood would chase my sister because she refused to take a spanking. So you spent a lot of day, I mean, it, chasing each other to get spanked. But um, I think it probably, I don't think that I, I was acting to stop the spanking. I think it hurt my feelings is what it was. So I think my feelings have always been kind of at the, near the surface. And I remember we were, we used to get my weekly reader mm -hmm. and it was about things that were happening around the world. And I remember sitting at the table and just starting to weep. I was probably about seven then. And 
my father, you know, rolled his eyes. My mother just went like, you know, don't go hard on her. And he said, what's the matter, babe? I said, I read that 5,000 people died in a flood in India, you know, and my sister and my brother would just cackle and laugh. And my, you know, my father would say, stop it, stop it. And he goes, you know, go wash your face. You can't help anybody crying. You know, do your homework. Maybe you can be useful one day. So, so I, again, talking mm -hmm. about how we feel each other, I think people that surrender to their artistic self, because I think we all have it in mm -hmm. spades, uh, are predisposed to be able to feel each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's like a, a little bit of a Geiger kind of counter that you go towards something that's, uh, that's scalable in a way, that it's human, that there's something there to be done. And so I want to jump from there to the craft, where you revealed a little earlier that it was more in college that you studied acting and developed your craft. And was that an easy transition? That feel perfectly natural? Oh, yeah. And just yeah. Fast, because fast and furious? You, you know how, and everybody that's an artist in the, or in the audience, there's that thing when you're young, there is an energy inside you, and you don't know what it is. And I got checked for all kinds of things. I, I spent, a, you know, worms, everything. It's like, what well, something is off about it. And I think it is that uh, there's in, in intuition in you that is that, and there's energy and movement in there that that is connected, is connected to other people in the world. And if you're lucky enough, somehow you get into a position where you, you, you can go flying across the room as a young man and go, yes, you, know, you, you have that energy. Um, or those words will come out of you, poets. But it's there, and if, if, if you aren't, if it isn't recognized in you or suspected in you by adults around you, uh, you get labeled a lot of other things. You don't know what that is. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, I think um, it was a, a harnessing and a focusing of something that was already in me mm -hmm. as it was in you mm -hmm. that uh, it, it's almost, uh, you're, you're so, it's a relief to channel it. It's a relief to give it boundaries and focus and a name and a discipline. So yes, you, when, when there is a possibility that you can put words to the sounds coming through your head, it goes fast. And this was available to you and you got, did you feel like instantly recognized and well, I this never, is going to be my career? I mean, did you have that epiphany? I had that, I, I knew it was like, okay, I don't want to stop doing this because there was such a sense of freedom. And right now, you know, frankly, there's a lot of being in the business because you're bringing something that is sacred into a very secular marketplace on film and theater as well now. So there's t what makes you successful in the business is not at all what makes you uh, a good artist or a, a, a producer of, of product that, that reaches people. So some of, the, some of the most talented artists 
we never hear from them because they didn't have that other thing that could withstand the marketplace and how it demands and what it demands of you, which is antithetical to mm -hmm. come as you are. You've got to come authentic to your art or it isn't universal. So that same openness and authenticity, you bring it to Hollywood and they say, your nose is too big, you need to have some more breasts, you need some pecs, all of that. It's just, so it, it's, it's all of those things together, but now I'm off the subject of what you just asked me. Well, I was just asking, I mean, just whether, oh, whether it was instantly clear yeah, that so, this was gonna work. So you do all of that for, to me, you put up with all of that BS just for those moments between action and cut. There is such freedom and, and life and connectivity there in those moments. And hmm. I must say, you don't do it to get recognized because part of the gig is you don't get recognized. You know, you have to be a person that's very comfortable with rejection because mm -hmm. it's constant. The biggest people are rejected every day. We might see the few things they're in or some flashy cameras going off, but that's not, you know, again, it takes, a, it's another characteristic to be able to be rejected. It doesn't mean you build up against it. It's just rejection has nothing to do with it yeah. because you've already identified yourself. You own your voice. You own even the fact that uh, you know before anybody else tells you whether you whether you played, whether you know before anybody applauds or not, or not, a maestro knows, a violinist knows. Mm -hmm. And it's nice if everybody agrees, but, but you have You have that. Your, own, yeah. your own meter, yeah. And the truth is, this is very new of artists being recognized in their lifetime. The trip is, it's kind of, I don't know, it, it, it's, Artists have to work on themselves because they start to want to expect to be in, they expect to be and they want to be recognized in their lifetime, but it's a very new thing. Um, that and, and, that, and I mean that separating mm -hmm. an artist from a celebrity, which is nothing yeah. wrong with being a celebrity, but the public needs to know that there's a difference. And unfortunately, the people that give money, put up money for dance projects for anything, they, they don't know. We've all bought into this culture of celebrity. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, on the recognition front, and we can safely say you're just wildly recognized. I mean, all the Emmys and the Grammy nomination, Oscar nomination, and all the awards. But I think when I look at, the, at your, your career strictly on the, on, as an actor, it's the, it's the arc of it that I imagine that you're measuring. It's the length of the of the of the engagement with whether it's TV series or the engagement with with the craft itself. Um, is is that is that do I read that correctly, or do you actually? I mean, I have a feeling. I mean, I talked a little earlier. Someone asked me from the audience, or, or I just decided to talk about it, um, that as a dancer, when I, I worked really hard to get to a place that you know, I, I never thought I was done or anything. But but then other things started to become more important, and then it became about how does this fit with other things uh -huh. that happened to you. Well, you know, when you have dreams, it's always important to have dreams. But you can only dream as far as your horizon. So. 
the dream just sort of sets you in motion. Having, having a goal or having a point, it sets you in motion, but a person in motion is continuing to learn and to see things that they couldn't see. So you get different vantage mm -hmm. points. So uh, what I would say I set out to do when I left Tulsa to go and train at Boston University, I haven't done it, and there's part of me that still would like to do that, but I had no idea of all the other things that I could do. You, dis you discover it on the way, and it's not like you say, oh, you know what, I can do that? It's suddenly somebody turns and says, we gotta get downtown, they're arresting all the gay kids. And you don't even have time to think about it, you didn't say, oh, I'm gonna go do something, do some theater or something on the corner today. It's just like, if you are a human being and as an artist, what you're doing is constantly taking away things is much more important than adding on things to get back to where you were as a child when your artistic and creative impulses were purer. And so uh, training the voice is usually not taking on training of the voice, it's getting away, tearing, pulling, back, pulling away those things. Getting down to the essential elements that are true. When, when we are, you know how, how we, if you hear a kid that's two go, I won't screw your eye, ears up, but they go, Wah! they can just sh shriek. If we holler at one moment at a soccer match, our voice is, is hoarse the, the next day, it's because Everything that happens to us, everything we see, becomes an emotion stored emotionally in our body and muscle. Mm -hmm. And so people aren't born with nasality. They're just, babies don't talk like that. They, and some guys try to pitch their voices too low. So the training of the voice, when certain things happen, when your grandmom dies, that first person you're around nine or 10, all that gets stored. So, the artist, the work of the artist is always trying to get back to neutrality of the actor. So it's taking away those things that we have put on mm -hmm. as, as, as uh, armor. So, Can I jump then, yeah. if I'm understanding you correctly, that that applies to your sense of activism as well? That you just don't get in the way of it in some weird way? It's, you respond it's true, to your humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your humanity is there, and, and if, if, you're, if my work is to, um, is to tell people stories, is to inhabit a human being, to let their voice be heard, whether it is a, a, a fictional person or a person even that a, a writer has come up with, it is still somebody that that person knows. A fictional character is still you know, our mind, our eye takes those pictures, you know, hundreds of thousands of pictures at a time. So everything that we're, we're bringing forward, we're giving, it's, it's been, it has come into us before. So even in doing that, I don't understand, I don't see how it's possible to separate caring and, and having a responsibility for a human being or for human beings and being able to to bring them to life, but not feel them in their daily life, not respond to their, the quality of their lives. Mm -hmm. So you become a first responder in a way to being a neighbor. Mm -hmm. 
whatever it is, a first responder towards justice. Tell me what your first real passion was. Well, I have to tell you was. this. It just yeah. made me think of this. One of my favorite quotes is Lorca, uh, Federico Garcia Lorca. And he says, uh, I'm paraphrasing, the song, the poem, the dance is but water drawn from the well of the people. Mm. We give it back to them in a cup of beauty that in drinking they may come to know themselves. And ever since we first stood up on two feet around a fire, what has happened is there's been a griot or whatever you want to call them, a, you know, the lore keeper, and that's been a sacred space for the tribe. That, that person mm -hmm. kept the lore of the tribe, kept the stories, and and you'd sit around, they, you know, basically holding the mirror up to the tribe so that they could see themselves. They could, uh, it would, some of the stories I'm sure were funny, make them laugh, reflect, whatever, just so that they could keep moving forward. It was always for the well-being of the tribe. I, I think that continues today. And that is, it is, uh, it's, it is service. It's a part of health to me. Uh, we enjoy it, but... We tell stories and we have always kept stories from the beginning um, to keep, to say, yes, we have been here. Yes, you know, to keep a record of the fact that we had being, but also to help us in a human way, in an interpersonal way to navigate a way forward. Mm -hmm. Interpretation of a sort to, to be the medium of it. I mean, I love that idea. I mean, the lark, that circle that it comes from the people, but they don't actually know that it, it's theirs. That's, that's an Emerson thing, too, about ah. genius. We, rec we recognize in genius our own rejected thoughts come back to us. <laughs> and it's that same thing that it, we know it because it's, we could almost have done it, almost have felt it ourselves, but because we have. Yeah. It's, it's in our. In our but we recognize we it. We recognize yeah. it. So tell me about the first real, I mean, was, was the, the, the fight for uh, equality in South Africa? the first real activist thing for you, or was that just... No, that was... That was along the way. Yeah, yeah. And you're very, you're very uh, identified with that as a co-founder? Of Artists for uh, New South Africa. It was Artists for Free South Africa. Before. Uh, before, before democracy. Yeah. But uh, probably, you know, I was aware of the situation in South Africa when I was in college, but it was also that, that time we were laying down on the trolley tracks in Boston, uh, trying to stop the war. And this was in the early 70s. The, the cities had been on fire uh, with the assassination of uh, Malcolm and Bobby Kennedy and, and, and Martin Luther King. It was like, that was the last straw. I was like, they shot the one that has said, you know, I'm all about love and brotherhood. And, and again, you know, women had found their voice and, but we were still fighting about it because some women felt like, you know, they're strident. We shouldn't be like that. And so it was just, it was a crazy and wonderful time because you knew that you have to stir up the muddy riverbed, as the old folks tell us, for any kind of new action to come. And so it was, it was um, during that period, um, it was more focused, my and, and most young people's uh, attention was focused internally, but you were aware of South Africa. So it was after I left BU and, and things sort of settled there, except the Boston issue, uh, Boston busing issue, uh, 
came to a head in 75, but I had gone to LA and so you start, you're trying to start your career, you're doing all those things, you're trying to get laid or not, and all kinds of like, woohoo, you know, it was, it was party time and fabulous and wonderful time to be young. But again, you can only you lay there for about an hour and you go, hmm, so, so I, we need to be doing something else. We, we'll lay out a couple of hours a day, but then we've got to get busy. We've got to be doing things. And that's when the, the South African, uh, um, the, the apartheid situation, as, as smoke started to clear on some of our situations, you, your eye was taken to, oh my God, this is going on and the history of it, knowing how long it had been going on. And so that was the impulse. I'm over here, thousands of miles away from there, but how can I be separated from it? That's the thing that keeps coming back. You cannot separate yourself. Well, I can't separate myself from anything that happens anywhere. Because the thing about flying around the world is that you see that everybody eats rice. They put different flavor on it, you know, the Mujahideen has cousins that they love, just like, you know, the Democrats do. The, you know, people in the Shining Path also had children. I mean, it's, it's, it's that thing of understanding that it's, you just flavor up, you flavor up a human being by their circumstance. And if you want to engage with a human being, if, if you really are concerned about uh, you having well-being, and you can't have well-being if, if, if everybody around you doesn't have it. So, it's, so that's the great thing is we live long enough to keep trying it every day, hopefully until we drop. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I could not. And, and it's particularly the South African situation spoke to me so much because I felt this spiritual kinship to South Africa. I know we're mm -hmm. supposedly all from West Africa, the African-Americans, uh, but I've never felt that way about West Africa. I've just, I, I could appreciate West Africa the way a person of Italian descent might, uh, an awake person of Italian descent might, it was like sort of social political understanding. But with South Africa, it was always very, um, very based, basic for me in my body. And I think it was because they, our movement here so mirrored the movement there. The Niagara Conference here happened in the teens that started the NAACP, was happening about the same time as the, the, uh, the People's Congress came together in the teens in South Africa. And, and they've always looked to the civil rights struggle in the states as a, as a sort of marker uh, of possibilities of strategies. And even during uh, apartheid, during the bu bus boycott, Montgomery bus boycott, they, they all started to walk to work there in a dominant culture. I mean, it was, there was a symbiote, yeah. And then a uh, simpatico thing happening, the music drawing back and forth. So there's always been this thing. And even uh, white South Africans, cared more about what Americans thought of them than they did the rest of the world. I mean, that's why, to a certain extent, the sanctions movement worked so well. And, and our, our job was to, and you have to stop me talking, because uh, our job was to uh, educate the American public, whether it was 
whatever you did in a community, whatever your job was, it was a grassroots effort all over the country to get people to understand, okay, the, the regime, yes, the, the, the European-looking people, which we usually always side with in a conflict, they're actually not our people in this struggle. Our people, the democratic people, are the black and brown and the few white people who are, are working for democracy. So, so you that took became, that as your charge, essentially? Yeah, this is yeah. an, it's an information campaign. It's a, it's a, it's a way to turn the tide of public opinion, essentially. Yes, yes, and help Ron Dellums get the, the sanctions bill passed on the floor of the Congress. Also, because the American public is a big-hearted mm -hmm. group of people. We are the biggest-hearted people in the world, trust me. We are, you know, person yes. to person, Americans will give you the shirt off their back. They will run to the defense of somebody that's screaming. So it's, it's when we don't have full information that we, we don't seem to, to work well as a society coming to people's aid. So um, what we did was we went straight to the leadership, the, the people who were banned underground, the Tambos, Madiba, and then while they were still on the island, we went to them and said, how can we be of assistance rather than making it up your, yourself? And that's another thing is that uh, when you want to help people, it's best to ask them, what can I do to help you? Rather than, hey, I've got a great idea, yeah. you know, because you're not in that situation, so you don't know how to be of help. So that's how we establish that relationship through the years. I see. And I see you're wearing uh, Nelson um, Mandela. Yeah. Did you meet him? Uh, at what point did you come into contact? Um, you know, we, Danny Glover and I did a movie for HBO called Mandela. And again, that, this effort was to... Uh, to put a human face, because he was just called a terrorist then, and you just saw little blips from him from the BBC. Um, also back then, Reuters, AP, UPI, they were all in South Africa, but they weren't allowed to report the news out of there by the government. So back then, it was fax machines, guys, we'll explain what that is. So the Washington office on Africa and uh, TransAfrica would get faxes every day from people on the ground in South Africa saying, this is who has been uh, detained, this is who has disappeared, this is who's been killed. And it was the names of people where hotspots were. And so we would go to the Washington Post or uh, LA Times or New York Times and they wouldn't print it because it wasn't coming from- The official sources. Yeah, yeah. it was coming from black people and crazy white people in South Africa to black people in DC. It was like, you know, sorry we can't. So then what we did, this is one of the first things was, if actors want to hold a news conference, they will come, it'll be talking about your cellulite, I'm, I'm engaged. <laughs> if a celebrity wants a, 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 you know, they can bring the camera. So what we would do, we had a big meeting. I put out a bunch of faxes all around the business and just said, anybody interested, on the situation in South Africa, come to Bob, uh, Bob Guillaume and Donna Guillaume, Donna Brown Guillaume's house. About 400 people showed up. People were hanging off the walls. There were editors, actors, secretaries, you know, the people that bring the ice to the studio. And so that's how we actually formed artists for uh, uh, New South Africa, then a Free South Africa. And so um, what we did was to take our ability 
our whole, our, working in our community, but our whole community was the nation because we're in people's um, homes every night on TV and things like that. And, and just do grassroots work informing. And so we would have press conferences, getting that material out. We always have an Africa expert with us. And, and so we were, we, were, we were, it was an activist organization. Mm -hmm. And we, over the years, we probably raised about $12 million that we never kept any of it. It went straight to South African uh, nonprofits on the, on the ground that we thought were effective. So it sounds to me like that grassroots organization, which you know you experienced as a kid knocking on doors, uh, trying to get out the vote. It's, it's just it just takes on other forms as it goes along. So then it's rallying the Hollywood community uh, and seeing how you can actually pinpoint your own talents to that. So let's jump to education now, where we're we're lucky enough to work together on turnaround arts and other projects. Art Strike in L.A. You came and did one of those with me at Inner City Arts, uh, and the. The challenge is quite different, it, though it still is. There's a public opinion element, certainly, about that. We discussed that earlier with Howard about you know why does why does arts education as a as a as a genre of education not get the uh, the same cred, and some of its misunderstanding, some of its competition things. But you know we had a question earlier from one of the young poets from from Carlin that. Uh, she said, um, we didn't get to answer, what about a school where kids really are just going to survive? They're there just to kind of try and get through. Am I paraphrasing correctly? Um, and you know, we've seen schools like this, uh, but what do you think about in that? I mean, I, I, can, I can set you off probably because I know that you're really a, a humanist in, the, in, the, in a one sense of the word, that you look for the human being and think, what can we do? But that challenge is, Many fold, where you've got kids who you know are, are are not being given adequate resource essentially. So why should they try? You know, they're just there to survive. What's your reaction when you when you think about that? Well, it it, it makes me angry that that situation exists. First of all, I'm, I'm flabbergasted. Then I get angry, and then. I get nervous about what it means. And one of the things that I know that cures all of that is to get busy. Mm -hmm. You can't cure it all. And most people are, um, what do you call it? They're shut down or stymied. They, they become immobile because they get overwhelmed about, about problems. But the thing is, you, you, you choose a point, you head for it, you do your one thing. You hopefully infect other people, they do one thing. I mean, that's the thing. I think the reason that it all just doesn't go to hell in the handbasket right now is that just as all of those, as those unjust situations are, are uh, existing, there are people trying every day, sometimes uh, failing at it, but the important thing is that the energy is going towards trying to do something about it. That's why I do what I do, is because I can't believe you know, and I paid a lot of money for my children, and thank God I was able to do it, to go through school. I had paid more by the time they started preschool. I had paid more in those first three years before they even got to kindergarten than my entire college education cost because I couldn't let them go to the LA Unified Schools. Now, yeah, that's rich lady problems, but the thing is, 
I'm grateful that I could do that, but that means I also have a double responsibility that I got to keep trying to do something to fix it for everybody else's kids that can't afford to do that. And I'm saying, rich lady, even just working class people in, in LA, the situation is so bad that people take out multiple loans just to get their kids into some kind of parochial school, anything, because, because of the, that broken school district. Last thing I'm gonna say, and then I'm gonna go back to what you said. When I, went to, when I moved to California 40 years ago, California had the top schools in the nation 40 years ago, and probably about 36 years, 35 years ago, we had a Proposition 13 uh, that cut funding. It was a property tax thing. And the, of course, when they started to cut the funding, the arts, education, education all around. General, yeah. But, you know, that is within 30 years. No, because we've been struggling now for 20 years. Within 20 years, we went from the top school system in the nation who you wouldn't believe. I think we might be about three up from Louisiana, something like that. But that's what happens. Okay, so back to this. So, so the, the thing is, everybody deserves a place to go that's safe, that there are people there who are interested in what they have to say, that people care what's gonna happen to them the next day, the next year, and 10 years from now. Um, Everybody deserves that. The only thing that we have found, and there's people, there's all kinds of, there's Teach for America, there's A-plus schools, there's all these different entities that are working to try to do something to fix the schools. Um, but in the meantime, one of the things that we have found that, it, that really uh, goes quickly, a long way and quickly, on not much money, is integrating arts into the curriculum. Um, if it's a school where people just don't want to show up because the, the, the community is depressed around it, you know, life is depressed, having that thing that's not a playtime, but is a moment of self-expression that you need even more so when you don't have a voice and your parents don't even have a voice that moment of expression in a day for an hour is enough to make you say, you know what, I'm going to school. You know what, I'm going to listen right now. Be quiet, I'm trying to work on my trombone. You know, just it, it, it changes behavior in our schools. We've seen that. The I mean, there's a, there's a, there's one thing I'd say too. And I am really never, I'm never comfortable saying, it's the arts, that's what it is. I often say to a, a friend of mine who's, uh, big supporter and, and an activist for dance education in schools, just very focused on dance. And I say, let them read too. Um, and I think about that sometimes about what we're advocating here is that you guys want to go to school. And that, if that's, you know, I've, I've read about ABCs, athletic, band, and chorus, makes kids want to come to school. They want to come for the game, they want to come to be in the band, they want to come to be in the chorus. There's like a thing that you're a part of beyond simply what like Little Buck described earlier, like they gave you the work and you have to give the back the work. Mm -hmm. not, that, not a great incentive system on that, unless you really are either excelling at the work already, lucky enough to have that incentive, or perhaps uh, you have an example in your family, you've got the path in your mind, but so much of the time what you're describing when we see it is that those pathways aren't there, and that leads nowhere. 
There's no pathway. You don't go anywhere. You don't know how it's going to happen to you. So you have to get at it maybe from another way. And maybe that's, that's those, those ABCs. That's where there's something else that's there. That's you guys with your poetry. It's, it's, uh, it's a thing that involves you on another level that makes you part of a community, right? Right. And it, cr it creates community. Art, being, being expressive, being, it, it's, again, it goes back to we are all tribal people. The tribe is just now the whole planet, but it creates fellowship and it creates connectiveness and, mm -hmm. and that's what's missing. And do you, when you use the word responsibility, do you feel that it's an artist's responsibility to be an activist in some way, to be fully aware, to have your, you know, that, uh, this great letter from Martha Graham to Agnes DeMille telling her to keep the channel open. You gotta be open. Is that part of that responsibility? I think... Was it individual? I don't know if it's a responsibility or a characteristic of really being, uh, really honoring your art is that it goes hand in hand. Mm -hmm. It's already there. So uh, the people that just go to their cubicle or go sit by a pool or whatever they do are, and, and they don't think past it. You, you, you see it in their work. You know, you see the difference in people's involvement in the world, no matter what their business is. You see the difference in their product mm -hmm. when they have a worldview, a city view. When I say a, wor a worldview, I'm just talking about a city. You don't have to go to Zimbabwe and Uganda, like, mm -hmm. you know, and shout at Museveni, like, you know, we've done in the past year. But in your city, there are kids that, that don't know how to read. You can establish a relationship there. There are, there are seniors who just need somebody to come pick up the whatever and take it over there or say hello to. So activism isn't necessarily being in the line, literally, of the bullets. Activism is, is being a neighbor. And a neighbor, it's, you know, it's still your neighbor if they're around the world, if you're Malala, but it also means, why do I keep passing this school and I am a professional woman and I haven't gone in there to just say, can I talk to the seventh grade girls? Mm -hmm. And just say to them, you know what? I used to sit in a desk just like that. And, and I was, you know, daydreaming most time. I was writing my name like Mrs. So-and-so, like I was the, for the cutest boy in the class. So they just need to know that there's a way to, that there's a road from where they are to where they might want to be. That's right. I thought we would take a few questions. Uh, why don't we start with the gentleman right there? Damien's asked me questions about things that makes me very intense. You guys, I'm not really this intense all the time. <laughs> Please, go ahead. Thank you. I run a charity for disadvantaged youth that uses sports to create social activism or more social justice. And so I go to a lot of conferences where people are always thinking sports is the way to get kids to be more creative, more connected. And listening to you as artists, I'm sure you go into those same spaces where people are saying without the arts, the, it's proven and the science shows and all of that. And I've been trying to break down the barriers. It's not sports, it's not arts. It's really the mentoring, it's the giving them the opportunity to learn how to find their voice to speak out and create change. And I just wondered your opinions on that. 
Well, as I said a moment ago, I am, I'm, I, I always strive not to be exclusionary and say, no, it's not that, it's this. I think that all of the full rounded education is what I'm hoping for. That's the education I hope for, for young people. And that involves athletics, that involves arts, that involves all of the, the opportunities that you know, we can actually imagine for, for kids. So the problems occur, of course, when there's a comp competition for, for time and value. But what you described as mentorship, I describe as showing the path. And finding voice, what you describe, is something I've seen, Alfred, you do so, you know, kind of magically in schools where, you know, uh, you'll be in a classroom, let's say the, the Lame Deer, Montana, where they really aren't terribly responsive, frankly, just not willing to share because it's not part of what they do on a daily basis. And to get them actually to tell their story, to finally tell their story, was, is, is a huge step forward to finding voice, which means finding your path. And I find that that's the key in the end, finding engagement, getting the participatory element to happen. And it can be arts, it can be athletics, it can be uh, a number of things, but to my mind, the, the one thing that I'd say is that the arts integrate into all of it. They integrate into the human soul, into our availability to understand. They integrate into our participation and our teamwork. They integrate into all of it in a way that I don't think there is anything else there. I think what you described again, when you have those images, standing up by the campfire and being told the story of your people is something very special that, that does not happen in athletics, actually. It's, it's just not there, so not to get competitive. Um, you guys talked about how the, the responsibility of being an artist and an activist at the same time and how those can be two different entities, but what, have, what do you guys think about the response of the idea um, of turning your art into activism being a responsibility as well? Hmm. Oh, I don't think that that is a responsibility as much as a gift. Some people are more predisposed to it of whatever their art form is. And so that's, it, it's not their responsibility, that's part of their art form. It's you know a continuation of it. Some people make decisions about their activism. Uh, as, a, as a woman, what kind of roles am I really going to say no to? It, 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 there's all, there's as many different, as there are artists and as there are fingerprints, there's those many different ways to approach it. And I'd also point out that there's uh, covert and overt <laughs> activism in art. <laughs> there is art that actually exists on its own merits and is an artistic product that has a tremendous activist uh, sensibility. It, it can change the world type thing, even though it's not meant to be activism. We're not going to make set out to make that happen, and I can tell you some examples about that. But uh, there's a very interesting difference between those. That was Alfie Woodard and Damian Wetzel, recorded live at the 2014 Aspen Ideas Festival. The Aspen Ideas Festival is the nation's premier gathering place for leaders from around the globe and from across disciplines to engage in deep, inquisitive discussion and tackle the ideas and issues that shape our lives and challenge our times. You can discover more at our website, aspenideas.org. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast, Aspen Ideas To Go, on iTunes or other popular podcasting services. And while you're there, please take a few moments to rate and review this podcast and share it with your friends and colleagues. You can follow the festival, Aspen Ideas, on Twitter and Facebook. 
I'm Trisha Johnson, Editorial Director of Public Programs at the Aspen Institute. Thank you for listening.